0: Amen. You may be seated. Would you join me as we, again, look to the Lord in prayer? Glory be to you, the Father, and to you, the Son, and to you, the Holy Spirit. You who have Cause your word to be written for our instruction, that through the encouragement and the endurance provided by the Scriptures, we might have hope. We pray that you might minister to us by your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Galatians chapter 6. Today we come to the end of the book of Galatians. Paul's closing argument, his last review of the evidence, his last appeal to the jury. And it's a powerful one. From the outset of the the book of Galatians, the tone of the letter has been one of deep concern and indignation, and with good reason. Like a father defending his children... Paul's love for the Galatians has led him to jealously defend them against these false teachers who had been wooing them away from the truth of the gospel. Paul's rhetoric throughout the letter has been fervent and intense, matching the gravity of the situation, and it's no different in the final paragraph. Paul begins his conclusion by saying in verse 11, see what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. This was customary. Paul likely used a secretary to, to take down his letters, and then at the end would take the pen himself and sign his name and authenticate its context and uh, uh, contents, and, and then he would add personal greetings and, and information about uh, his travel plans and ministry and give some final instructions to others, and, it, and often in his letters it serves as a sort of... Uh, decelerant, as he begins to, to bring the plane in for a landing. But in Galatians, Paul notably does not include any of this. He does take up the pen himself, but in fact, it's the only one of Paul's letters in which he doesn't offer some kind of personalized greeting or instruction at the end. He doesn't, he doesn't ease off the throttle as Galatian ends. We see that the the intensity of his language, as he says, he's now writing in his own hand using large letters. The idea here isn't that Paul needed to make the font big enough so he could read it. Rather, he's writing in big, bold characters to emphasize the importance of what he is saying. Something like uh, typing with the caps lock on. You ever get an email or a text and that somebody has written to you in all caps? Doesn't it feel like they're yelling at you? Do you want to tell them, calm down? The size of the characters we use can can indicate something about the tone and intensity of what's being written, and that's the idea here. This is Paul writing in all caps, bold, double underlined. The depth of his concern for the Galatians and the urgency of preserving the truth of the gospel is again demonstrated as he delivers here, first, a a final condemnation of those who follow a false gospel, and second, a final contrast with those who embrace the true gospel, and third, a final challenge to the Galatians themselves on what they will do with the gospel. So a final condemnation of those who follow the false gospel, a final contrast with those who embrace the true gospel, and a final challenge to the Galatians on what they will do with the gospel. So we'll begin in verses 12 and 13, this final condemnation of those who follow a false gospel. Here Paul exposes the false teachers and their followers for what they really are. Regardless of what they may claim, they care nothing for the spiritual health of the Galatians, nor do they care anything for the sacred truth of the gospel. Rather, we learn here that they are seeking only to impress the world, avoid persecution, and boast in the flesh. And so first we see those who follow a false gospel are seeking to impress the world. Verse 12, the false teachers, Paul says, are trying to compel the Galatians to be circumcised and to become fully obedient to the law, not because they are concerned for their souls and their salvation, but instead because they want to impress people by means of the flesh. False teachers really just want to put on a good show to those around them. They want to be approved and accepted. They want to be thought well of by the world, and especially by their own culture, law-observant Judaism. Paul knew all about this. It's precisely the culture that he had come from and because of which he had so zealously persecuted the church. He had not done so because he was really concerned for Christians' souls, nor truly because he was concerned for God's glory. But as he said in Galatians 1, he did this because he was extremely zealous for the traditions of his father. Oppressing the world around you means advancement and ease and acclaim and prestige And so it was for Paul, who said that because of this zeal he had for the traditions of his ancestors, he had been advancing in Judaism beyond many of his own age. And surely this tendency was not unique to Paul, nor to the other false teachers in Galatia. It's just just run-of-the-mill people-pleasing, courting the favor of the world to get ahead. We spend so much time in other arenas of our of our lives trying to impress those around us and receive recognition financially, professionally, academically, physically, relationally. And so it becomes all too natural for us to apply the same thing to our spiritual lives, seeking to impress others, please the world. What's wrong with that, you might ask me? We all want people to like us, don't we? We're not aiming for people to dislike us. I mean, if we're going to aim to impress the world, isn't isn't doing so with our spiritual attainments the best version of that? Won't being unimpressive to the world actually work against the progress of the gospel? Certainly our aim is not to be disliked by people, but if our aim is to please and be faithful to God, it may and often will mean being disliked by others who don't share our convictions and who in fact find our convictions to be downright offensive. Here we do well to remember the words of the Apostle James, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. At the same time, we, as we read earlier from 1 Corinthians 1, God has actually chosen to accomplish his purposes through those the world considers to be quite unimpressive. So there can be no mistake about who's responsible for doing the saving. Because of how, how we are innately inclined to this attitude of people-pleasing and friendship with the world-seeking, it's vital that we get this clear in our minds, Because people-pleasing can lead to gospel drifting. People-pleasing exalts others' opinions over faithfulness to God. The more devoted you are to impressing others, the more disposed you will be to trimming and pruning the truth of the gospel in order to placate them. If our goal is to impress the world, the more the world finds the sharp corners of the gospel offensive, the more we'll be willing to sand down the gospel until nothing worth keeping remains. And part of the reason for this is that the parameters for impressing the world are constantly changing. If you're devoted to being accepted by the world, you will have to keep making more and more compromises until there's nothing left to compromise or concede. So rather than taking our stand upon the truth and saying with, with Luther my conscience is captive to the word of God and here I stand I can do no other, we are tempted to compromise our convictions in order to conform to the latest cultural directive in a desperate attempt to be considered relevant. But the goalposts of what would make us relevant and acceptable to the world are always moving. Moving. If our aim is to please the world, we'll just inevitably surrender more and more ground just to keep up. And in doing so, the church slowly but surely becomes indistinct from the culture and can no longer serve as a prophetic and evangelistic witness. This is what the false teachers in Galatia had done out of a desire to impress the world. They had sanded down the gospel, removed what would be offensive Closely related to this, those who follow a false gospel are also seeking to avoid being persecuted on account of Christ. Again, verse 12, Paul says, the only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. So the motive behind their desire to impress people is not only to gain the world's favor, it's also to avoid the world's ire. From the beginning, those who, who preached the undiluted gospel of grace have been persecuted. The reality of such persecution leads to this same temptation to truncate and tamper with the truth of the gospel. And this is exactly what the false teachers have done. Right? In, a, in an effort to avoid persecution by non-believing Jews, these false teachers have chosen to compromise the gospel. And this kind of compromise can look like an outright denial of biblical truth, like, say, teaching that justification comes by works and not by faith alone. That's what the false teachers had done. And there are tragically no lack of examples of those who have denied the gospel in order to avoid being opposed or oppressed for the sake of Christ. They fear man rather than God. This desire to avoid persecution can also take a a softer and more subtle form. So rather than outright denying biblical truth, we merely hide and minimize certain aspects of it, fearing that if someone discovers it, it might lead to opposition. We become embarrassed about what we believe, but rather than throw it out, we just stuff it in the basement and hope nobody notices. My previous church, there was a couple that came to a newcomer's event that we had one evening, and so we went around and asked, what what drew you to to our church? How did you end up here? They said, when we went on your website, it was easy to find your statement of faith. Apparently, that hadn't been the case for many other churches, even evangelical churches that they had researched. I've been on a lot of church websites, and that's True. There are many that make finding out what they believe like a competition to see how many links you have to click, how many pages you have to be redirected to before you can actually get a hold of what truths they confess. It's almost as if they're hoping you get tired of looking and give up before you find it. This is, of course, not to say that these, these churches or all of them have drifted from the gospel, but, but it ought to be alarming when you can't easily find out what a church or an organization believes. When I see this, I wonder to myself, is this because they're embarrassed about their doctrine? Is this because if they were to put what they actually believe front and center, it might lead to opposition? Are they ashamed of the gospel? Perhaps they don't outright deny any biblical truth, but they certainly don't rejoice in it. And they may well say, well, we we don't focus on that because doctrine divides which I would say, yes, doctrine divides between that which is true and that which is false. And that matters because Paul has already said in this letter, truth saves and falsehood damns. It matters. We read here that the false teachers are particularly concerned to avoid persecution for the sake of the cross of Christ. The idea of a crucified Messiah, as we Saw earlier in 1 Corinthians 1 is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks. To the Jews, the idea that the the Messiah would be crucified in weakness was highly offensive. To the Greeks, it was nothing but foolishness. Why would you worship such a weak God? The false teachers seem to be quite keen to remove the cross from its place of central importance and to replace it with something far more palatable to Jews and respectable to Greeks, the law. In every age, there are those who follow in their footsteps and try to make the gospel less offensive to outsiders that they might avoid persecution. This often involves obscuring the cross, taking the substitutionary, atoning death of Christ from its place of absolute centrality in the gospel. Perhaps it's done out of a desire to reach others, though if you're not reaching them with the cross, I'm not sure what you're reaching them with. Perhaps it's done in order to press the importance of Jesus' teaching or example instead of his death. Perhaps it's done out of an embarrassment of having to explain things like sacrifice and atonement and why we sing about blood to our cultured modern world. An example of this kind of deluded Christianity, if it can be called Christianity at all, can be found in the liberal theology of the late 19th century. This movement that emphasizes its central dogmas, the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man but seemingly had no place for the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Neither Jesus himself nor the apostles give us the option to decentralize or downplay or avoid the cross. Or throughout the ministry of Jesus he was repeatedly preparing the disciples for its culmination in his death. When Jesus gave the disciples a practice by which to remember him the Lord's Supper it symbolically specifically pictured his death. When the evangelists wrote the Gospels, they place a a disproportionate emphasis of their accounts on the events leading up to and surrounding Christ's death. Paul says that the Gospel, its most fundamental is that Christ died for our sins. When he described the essence of what he proclaimed, he said, we preach Christ crucified. When he reminded the Galatians of how he preached to them, he said that before them, Christ was publicly set forth as crucified. Put it simply in the words of John Stott, if the cross is not central to our religion, ours is not the religion of Jesus. So friends, are there things that you are tempted to prune or sand or hide or minimize about the Bible because you're embarrassed about it? Because to believe it would mean that you lose the world's approval, that it might bring opposition or persecution. Are you willing to stand on the truth of God's unchanging word, and especially the word of the cross in spite of opposition? Or are you flirting with the world's favor by chasing its constantly changing terms of approval? And if so, the words of the Lord Jesus are for you. Repent and hold fast to what you have received. We also see here that those who follow a false gospel are seeking to boast in what is accomplished by the flesh. Verse 13 They want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. Paul's opponents and their followers have taken up this false gospel not only to impress the world and to avoid persecution, but perhaps most fundamentally because it exalts self righteousness. It pleases their flesh. They want the opportunity to boast in what they have accomplished by their works. And it's fundamental to fallen human nature that we want to earn, to share credit, to contribute something to our standing with God. We want to come to God on terms of our own choosing. We're not naturally predisposed to come to him his way, the way of faith alone apart from works. Everything in us fights against it because it humbles self and exalts God. It makes nothing of our merit and everything of his grace. Now, to we who trust in the Lord Jesus, this is sweet, but to the flesh it is bitter. It can feel like swimming upstream against a current, fighting against the flesh that wants to take some credit, some glory from God. Those who follow this false gospel are laboring to keep in step with the world's standard, work, do, earn, merit, and then God will owe you and self will be exalted. But ultimately all these false teachers have done is to dress up the world's worship of self in biblical language. Right? But underneath it's all about impressing others to promote self, avoiding persecution to protect self, boasting in the flesh to exalt self. The god of this false gospel is not God, it is self. And so Paul warns the Galatians one final time that the way of this false gospel leads to death and condemnation. But those who embrace the true gospel stand in glaring contrast to those who follow this false gospel on every point. Instead of seeking to impress the world, they are crucified to the world. Instead of avoiding persecution, they're willing to suffer persecution for the sake of Christ. Instead of boasting in what is accomplished by their flesh, they boast only in the cross. And so the center of their religion isn't self, it's is Christ. Look at me at how Paul draws out these contrasting truths in verse 14. Instead of trying to impress the world, those who embrace the true gospel have been crucified to the world. Verse fourteen, may I never boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Recall what Paul said in Galatians two twenty I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Those who trust Christ have been crucified with him and raised with him. Their faith binds them to Christ in such a way that his death counts for their death and his life becomes their life. And this results in more than just forgiveness of sins. It certainly does, but it results in more than that. In Christ, we have died to the world and the world has died to us. We've died to the world in the sense that the world regards us as cursed and contemptible, ob- objects of shame and scorn on account of the cross. We refuse to worship what the world worships. We refuse to approve what the world approves. We refuse to love what the world loves, and so we're considered like crucified malefactors, outcasts the world simply can't wait to see expire. Because of our allegiance to Christ, we will never impress the world. But at the same time, we don't care. The world has been crucified to us. Having died and been made alive in Christ, the world has ceased to have mastery over us. Its opinions and offerings no longer hold us captive if I've received grace from God, what good is the world's favor? If I've been promised glory with Christ, what good are the world's accolades? If I'm known by God, what good is the world's notoriety and popularity? If I've gained the unsearchable riches of Christ, what good are the world's fleeting pleasures? If having been justified, I have received God's approval, What good is seeking out the world's approval? Those who embrace the true gospel no longer are enslaved to impressing the world. They have been crucified to the world and live in Christ. And Second, instead of trying to avoid persecution, those who embrace the true gospel are willing to suffer persecution for the sake of Christ. Look at verse 17, Paul says, from now on let no one cause me trouble for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The Greek word for marks is actually the word stigmata. Paul is not, however, talking about how he received a stigmata. You know what stigmata is? It's this phenomenon that some claim where the The wounds of Christ show up in your your body. But the word just means marks. And the idea here is is not this sort of supernatural occurrence of of this miraculous wounding of Christ. But rather, he's talking about the scars that he's received through being persecuted for the sake of Christ. Such as when he was stoned during his ministry in the Galatian city of Lystra. In Acts 14, these scars are the marks of Jesus insofar as they were suffered as a result of his proclamation and devotion to Jesus. Persecution and a willingness to to suffer persecution for the cause of Christ has a purifying effect on the church. When it comes, those who are associated with Christ's people merely out of convenience or tradition, or force of habit, or some other perceived benefit, fall away. Persecution forces the issue. It requires you to declare your allegiance. It's much like in John 6. Jesus had begun teaching hard things. He had large crowds following him. He started to teach Hard things, things that would get him killed, things that would lead those who followed him to be persecuted. And a vast number of those followers turned away. They said, this is hard teaching. Who can listen to it? Yet when Jesus turns to the 12 apostles and asks them if they are going to leave too, Peter responds, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Paul knew this too, and like the other apostles, he was willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel because he knew its truth and power. He knew that there was only in Christ that life and salvation was to be found. When you become convinced that Christ alone is your only hope and greatest treasure, the threats of the world pale in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. As Paul says in Philippians 3, that he considered all things as lost to know Christ, who's, for whose sake he's lost all things and considers them rubbish in order that he might gain Christ. So friends, have we like Paul and the other apostles found in Christ that precious treasure that would enable us to suffer the loss of all things and yet rejoice that we had gained Christ pray that Christ might become so precious to us those who embrace the true gospel are willing to suffer for the sake of Christ then third instead of boasting in what has been accomplished by the flesh those who embrace the true gospel boast only what is accomplished by the cross verse 14 may i never boast except in the cross of our lord jesus christ Have you ever been around somebody who only seems to be able to talk about themselves? Maybe they're the same people that text you in all caps. All they do is seem to be able to talk about what they have accomplished. That's what the false gospel produces. Those who only seem to be able to boast in themselves. Our flesh would have us boast in anything but the cross. Anything that would exalt self at the expense of exalting Christ. Paul knows that that's simply the way of the world, and the way of Christ is the polar opposite. So we read earlier in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to we who are being saved, it's the power of God. What the world considers foolishness, salvation by grace through faith in a crucified Messiah, Paul and all who share the same gospel faith know it to be the power of God. Their only hope and comfort in life and death, the only ground that they have for boasting. Those who truly know God make little of themselves and much of Christ. Salvation by the cross is a supreme leveling tool See, if if we're saved by our works, then one person's works will always be a little better than another's. Someone will always have been a little more loving, a little more obedient, a little little more faithful, a little more holy. Someone will always have come to God a little sooner, be a little closer to him, know a little more, be more highly favored by him. So it opens up the, the floodgates for human boasting. We can boast before God because our works led us to do enough to earn our salvation. And we could boast before others because the quality of our works renders us superior to them in some way. But for those who are in Christ, there's, there's no room for such boasting, either before God or others. No room for boasting about what makes you different or superior to others or especially acceptable to God. Because you didn't do anything to get in. And neither did they. All have come on the exact same terms as trophies of divine grace. And this is part of what makes the false gospel in Galatia so offensive. It insists on making distinctions between people, a a spiritual hierarchy that determines who has been rendered worthy to receive God's favor. It disgraces grace. But through the cross, all of these distinctions between people are rendered meaningless in the matter of salvation. And so all human boasting is utterly excluded. There's no greatest or least in the people of the new covenant. The great apostle Paul and the thief on the cross stand in total equality before the throne of grace because they have both received mercy in the exact same way through faith in Christ crucified. Their standing of righteousness is precisely the same. They are perfectly righteous with the righteousness of Christ. So there's no room for boasting in anything that, that we ourselves have done, but only in what another Christ has done on our behalf. The cross humbles human pride, pride expressed both towards God and towards one another and instead exalts and rejoices in God's glorious grace. Those who embrace the true gospel boast not in what they accomplish in their flesh, but boast only in the cross. Having contrasted the way of those who follow this false gospel of justification by works of the law, With those who follow the true gospel of justification by faith in Christ, Paul now issues this final challenge to the Galatians and what they will do with the gospel. There's no room for sitting on the fence here. Only one of these two ways leads to life, the other way leads to destruction. The Galatians have heard Paul's argument, the case rests, and now the Galatians are challenged to come to a verdict on how they'll respond. And this challenge, ironically, is found in the form of a a benediction. Look at verse 16. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, the Israel of God. Before we can break down how this verse functions as a challenge to the Galatians, I want to clarify whether Paul is speaking here about one group or two groups. So our translation, the NIV, the the issue isn't immediately obvious. Uh, There's a footnote that references it. But if you go to another translation like the ESV, you'll see the problem. The text literally reads here, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule and to the Israel of God. So at first glance, it might seem like Paul is giving this benediction to two distinct groups. Those who follow this rule, we'll come back and talk about what this rule is, and what he calls the Israel of God. But the Greek word and can serve as more than a simple conjunction. It can also be used as a marker of explanation. In that case, we'd be translating this something like, so peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, that is, to the Israel of God. Some would argue for the first option, it refers to two different groups, that the Israel of God must mean ethnic Jews or ethnic Jewish Christians. This interpretation is predicated on the idea that there's an inherent and permanent distinction between Jews and Gentiles, even after they come to Christ. The NIV has opted for the second of these options, and I think that's correct. Paul's referring to one group, and I'll just mention a few reasons why I think that. In the immediate context, he just said in verse 15 that neither circumcision being Jewish, nor uncircumcision, not being Jewish, mean anything when it comes to our standing before God. What matters is whether people, Jewish or Gentile, are new creatures in Christ. And if this is so, it would be quite odd for Paul to immediately turn to make a distinction between those two groups again. And then in the context of the whole book, Paul's argument has been that in Christ, these distinctions between Jews and Gentiles before God have have been permanently abolished. All people can be justified in the exact same way, by grace through faith in Christ alone. And all those who are justified are, we learn in Galatians 3, Abraham's descendants and heirs of God's promises. And Paul made this point abundantly clear in Galatians 3. He said, there is now neither Jew nor Greek For you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And it would be extraordinarily counterproductive for Paul to make this argument that God has made one new body out of two different peoples, and then, at the very end, to make that distinction himself. So we have good cause to understand Paul to be referring to just one group here, those who believe in Jesus Christ, irrespective of their ethnicity. It's like in Galatians 4, where Paul made a distinction between the present Jerusalem and the Jerusalem above. It's the same idea. There's a a present people of Israel, what Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 10, Israel according to the flesh. And an Israel above, or what he calls here Israel of God. And the determining factor of who belongs to this sin forgiven people is not ethnicity or obedience to the law, Paul says, but whether they follow this rule. So, what's this rule? Well, rule here doesn't mean a law to obey. Rather, rule here is think like ruler. It's a a standard used to measure. The word is actually the word canon. It's the word we use to to describe the the list of the books of the Bible. It's the measuring rod, the standard that is used. So here he's referring back to verses fourteen and fifteen. What determines whether someone belongs to God's people is not circumcision or lack of circumcision, but whether you have been rescued from the present evil age and have entered the life of the age to come by being justified by grace through faith in Christ. That's the measure, Paul says, now that Messiah has come, that is the measure of what it means to be a true Israelite. And Paul's opponents would have been infuriated by this remark because their whole program was built on ethnic superiority, legalistic obedience, making Gentiles become Jews and obedient to the law even though Paul says they themselves were not obedient to the law. And now Paul was telling them that not only did the Gentiles not need to become Jews nor obedient to the law, he was telling them that they themselves weren't truly a part of God's sin-forgiven people because they had not come to faith in Christ it is those who are justified by faith and not by works and only those who receive mercy from and peace with God and it's with this challenge that Paul closes the letter he laid out his argument in great detail he's pleading with the Galatians personally and biblically and theologically and practically making every effort to show them the the danger posed to them by this false gospel and the, the incalculable blessings of the true gospel. And now the Galatians have a choice. They can either follow the false gospel, be numbered among the hypocrites who seek the world's favor and avoid persecution and boast in the flesh and are excluded from the people of God. Or they can hold fast to the true gospel, be numbered among those who are crucified to the world, who are willing to suffer for the sake of Christ, who boast only in the cross and truly belong to God's people. This challenge is also a promise. It's a promise to those who do indeed follow this rule. It's a a free offer of mercy and peace with God to be obtained solely through faith in Christ. It's an offer of something that obedience to the law could never offer or accomplish. And the same offer stands open to you as well this morning. Do you know that you are a sinner deserving God's judgment? Do you desire mercy from God? Do you long for peace with God? Friends, it is offered to you in Christ if you will turn from your allegiance to self and instead entrust yourself to him, resting entirely on Christ alone for your salvation. As we come to the end of Galatians, I'll close by quoting an old Scottish hymn based on Galatians 6.14. Which is a fitting conclusion to this magnificent exposition of God's grace that Paul has left for us in Galatians. Where should the guilty who has lost Jehovah's favor by his sin find a worth that he may safely trust, a righteousness to glory in? Behold the cross, the blood divine that there for sinful man was spilt. Here's worth enough to glory in, enough to cleanse the foulest guilt. When false foundations all are gone, each lying refuge blown to air, the cross remains our boast alone. The righteousness of God is there. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your glorious grace with which you have blessed us in your Son, calling us from death to life, demonstrating your own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so, Lord, may we never boast in anything that we have done or are doing or could possibly do to earn your favor, but only boast in the cross in Christ who has saved us by grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand now as we sing our closing song?